From open borders to climate change, the island archipelago of Svalbard speaks to some of the most pressing and challenging issues of the day. Senior editor of The Nation, Atusa Abrahamian, joins us to discuss this Norwegian territory and the lessons it holds for the world. All of the stuff we argue about every day ultimately pales in comparison to the greater threat of climate change. Johnny Welch has listened to a lot of people as a bartender. His observations about the proliferation of smartphones in our lives led him to disconnect from technology to reconnect with people. In his book, Paper Maps, No Apps, Johnny rediscovers the power of personal interaction that travel brings when we let our phones go. We traveled around for 16 days in five states and we took our, took our phones off. And they were confused, like, well, how, how are you guys getting around? And we laughed, we're like, well, we have paper maps. And they're like, no. Join us as we explore Svalbard and reconnecting by disconnecting on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. From open borders to climate change, the island archipelago of Svalbard speaks to some of the most pressing and divisive issues of the time. Senior editor of The Nation, Atusa Abrahamian, joins us to discuss how this Norwegian territory holds lessons for the world. Before we explore Svalbard with Atusa, let's learn about The Nation, the oldest continuously published magazine in the United States. Atusa, your publication, The Nation, um, has a very interesting background story, and I want to ask you to give us a just a brief history of The Nation. The Nation is actually the oldest continuously published magazine in the United States. Uh, so it's the oldest weekly. We're not quite weekly, weekly anymore, but um, we do publish regularly and we are in print. So we've been covering um, progressive politics, left politics, liberal politics, as well as cultural news um, analysis and opinion since July 6th, 1865. And uh, it's gone through uh, various editors and owners and uh, iterations, but uh, still going strong. We learned that the nation was actually founded by abolitionists in an era of restricted migration, you actually found a place with an open border policy that you have written about in The Nation. Where is this place? So the, uh, Svalbard is the northernmost, one of the, the northernmost settlements in the world. It is a few hundred miles south of the North Pole, um, somewhere between the North Pole and mainland Norway. Uh, and Svalbard has had open borders for as long as it has existed. Um, at first, it was a no man's land. No country governed it. It was settled by hunters and miners and trappers and explorers. Uh, it was the base for many um, failed and successful North Pole adventures. And then after World War I in 1920 came the Svalbard Treaty which uh, formally gave Norway full sovereignty over Svalbard. But this treaty also stipulated that Norway had to let anyone in. So, and it's been run that way for for 100 years and uh, it's, it's working. Do immigrants receive the same rights and privileges as Norwegian citizens? Almost. So everyone who lives in Svalbard um, is kind of given the same opportunities and, and rights and responsibilities. Um, there, the, but with the caveat that there isn't a strong welfare state up there. 
It's not like the rest of Norway, which is known for its gener generous public benefits, its social welfare system, um, excellent health care, housing, etc. None of that applies in Svalbard. In fact, Svalbard um, also has the right to tax people far less than the mainland. So anyone can show up, but they're probably not going to get a whole lot of help living there either. Mm -hmm. Now, with regards to the, the treaty, um, I found very interesting that North Korea is a recent signatory of the treaty. Yeah, so any country can sign this treaty, um, and countries have been signing it, uh, you know, continuously since 1920. And uh, in 2016, North Korea decided to sign. Um, I asked a Norwegian diplomat what, what that involved, and she laughed, and she said, well, the North Koreans must have known that it's very easy to join. You just have to write a letter to the treaty offices, which are in France, and, uh, and that's the end of it. So it doesn't really, it doesn't cost much. But does that also allow all of the signatories uh, commercial rights to, uh, or some form of commercial rights um, to the natural resources located um, in uh, Svalbard? Yeah, it does. So anyone is allowed to um, mine, fish, hunt, start a business, but uh, all of these things are also regulated because, because Norway is able to regulate all of these industries. Um, albeit in a way that doesn't discriminate against non-Norwegians, they can still say, well, you can't just start a coal mine any old place. You can't just go and hunt whales any old place. There are very strong environmental protections. Most of Svalbard is, a, is an environmentally protected reserve. So in theory, yes. In practice, there are greater overriding environmental concerns that prevent it from being a free-for-all. One of the things that surprised us was that over-tourism is an environmental concern for this remote area. I was looking at the most recent statistics a minute ago and, and something like, in 2018, according to the government, there were 156,241 overnight stays in the main town of Longyearbyen. And the guest arrivals, um, also excluding camping, um, something like 73,000 people arrived. So wow. uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's up there, especially for a town of 2,300 people. Um, it, it adds up. Can a small town accommodate that many visitors? Well, you know, they don't come at once. And I think a lot of them sleep on, on cruise ships. So they'll, they'll show up or maybe stay just one night. Um, but, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, the, the town is really, um, buckling under, all of the arrivals, uh, it doesn't have the infrastructure to support so many people. There isn't really a, um, you know, they don't even have a septic system. So it's, it's not equipped. Um, and I think that they are working on it because it, this is a source of, of enormous, um, you know, uh, wealth uh, or, or money coming in. Um, but at the same time, there's, it's a very fine balance to strike because the nature up there is incredibly fragile and, uh, I think that the main concern of the governor of Svalbard, of the Norwegian government and the people who live there is to make sure that the nature remains intact because there's so much, it's, a, it's up against so much already. The last thing that the wildlife needs is a, you know, boatload of, of tourists coming and trampling all over everything. So what, what is it that's actually attracting tourists? Because uh, I understand also that, um, Svalbard never, <clears throat> excuse me, had an indigenous population. And so um, this wouldn't be a cultural uh, 
destination per se. That's true. There is a, a cultural, just a cultural heritage there that from the past 100, 200 years involving mostly, you know, there's trapper cabins, there's whaling um, artifacts, there's some, there's some stuff like that. But mostly people are there for the nature and specifically in, in recent years to see some of this nature before it disappears completely. So they call that last, last chance tourism. So kind of a depressing, kind of a depressing term for something that's mm. uh, more and more popular. And so what did you discover when you were there? Well, I was on an artist residence on a boat um, sailing for two weeks uh, on the, up, up and down the west coast of the archipelago. It was, uh, it was awesome. I mean, every day we saw different things. You know, the colors were shades of blue and white and gray and ice and, and barely any green, which is, for someone coming from the East Coast of the U.S., um, unusual. Um, it was cold, but not as cold as you'd think because it was June and, you know, we learned to layer up so we didn't, we didn't freeze too badly. Um, what, what was really stunning as well at that time of year is that there wasn't any nighttime. It was, it was uh, sunny all day, every day. Um, and that's because of the way that the, that the weather and that the, the seasons um, function that far north. In the winter, you have three months of what they call the polar night. And in the summer, we have the midnight sun. And, you know, it can really throw you off at first because you're used to, you're used to it getting dark at 7, 8, 9, 10 p.m. And it just didn't get dark. So you'd wake up at 4, go up on the deck, and, you know, maybe you'd see a polar bear in the distance. Maybe you would see some whales or some seals or some walruses. Um, it was a completely alien landscape. And a lot of people I was with kept commenting. It felt like we were in space or on the moon or on another planet. One of the other things I found interesting was that Svalbard is also home to the largest Vladimir Lenin statue. How, how did that come to be? That's a really fascinating story that has to do with this principle of not discriminating against foreigners. So when, when Svalbard became Norwegian in 1920, um, Country, signatory nations signed a treaty saying it's Norwegian, but anyone can go and live there. And, and businesses can also, regardless of where their owners or their um, employees are from, can establish themselves. And so this gave rise to two uh, Russian mining villages, since there was a coal industry there at the time and still is in a limited capacity. And uh, so the Soviet government kind of, it wasn't, it wasn't the government going there, but it was like a state-run company. Uh, or state-owned company called Arktikugel, and there were two Arktikugel company towns. One was called Bar is still exists called Barentsburg, and the other is called Pyramida. And uh, these were just little enclaves, little Soviet enclaves in on Norwegian territory. And it's uh, it's a really fascinating little peek at what Soviet architecture was like, what life was like, how they envisioned life for the workers working in these coal mines. Um, it's fascinating. You can still you can still visit. So that's where the Lenin statues come from. I think that uh, they were built to withstand the elements and so they still they still stand. There are 53 nationalities living in Svalbard. So we asked what other countries are doing to be recognized. A lot of the um, icons and, and the sort of um, 
mythology of Svalbard is quite Norwegian. There is a, uh, a chap called Roald Amundsen. He was a northern explorer, and there's a big statue of him in a little settlement called New Alisand, which is a scientific research site. Um, he's everywhere. Um, there are also, there's a museum that commemorates um, explorers from around the world, actually. These were, this was a place where uh, scientists and explorers and adventurers came together um, to have joint expeditions to the north. Uh, so that was, it was always quite a cosmopolitan place. One of the things I know you wanted to see was whether um, there were any lessons to be learned from the small 2300 person community that uh, would be relevant to the rest of the world. Did you learn yeah. anything or were there lessons? There, there are. I think something that strikes a lot of visitors in Svalbard is that um, nature there is in charge. Um, humans are not in charge. And our ideas about borders and citizenship and countries and all of this stuff that um, governs the way we govern uh, doesn't really apply up there because you're totally at the mercy of the elements. And the, the, the landscape, the natural world feels so awesome and so much bigger than any of us. It's quite humbling. And so what, what, I, what I came out of the experience with is just an awareness that all of the stuff we argue about every day ultimately pales in comparison to the greater threat of climate change and the degradation of, of the natural world. And that's really what we should be thinking about um, before any border wall or immigration policy. Considering the environmental and sustainability issues in Svalbard, how concerned should we be? What I can say is two things. Um, many, many, many of the glaciers we saw, our guides noticed that they were retreating. So um, ice is definitely melting. There's no question about that. And people who live there and, and travel there frequently can see it with their eyes. Um, it is there. Uh, the other thing that we noticed is that there's a lot of trash um, in the Arctic. This is, you know, candy wrappers, uh, TV sets, uh, tin cans. Um, we saw, uh, we found a, a full bottle of a drink called Iron Brew, which is a thing in, in, the, in the UK. Um, just all kinds of trash that washes up on the beaches there. And it's really, really jarring because you'll show up at a place and you'll look around and it's the most beautiful landscape ever and you look down at it, it's just covered in garbage and um, I live in New York City so I'm used to garbage being everywhere but seeing it there really is very very depressing um, and it makes us realize that what, what we're doing um, to the environment. For anyone interested in traveling to Svalbard, Atusa gave us some guidance. The best way to travel to Svalbard is to fly to Norway, to Oslo, and then hop on another plane that goes through Tromsø to uh, Longyearbyen. That's the only; those are the only commercial flights through um, through mainland Norway. There are also um, cruises and various um, um, boats and ships that, that go to the port there. Um, I couldn't tell you the schedules because I don't. I didn't. That's not how I got there. Um, and finally, there's a couple of charter flights from Russia every year for the Russian settlements. So that's a, that's a way to avoid going through Norway, but it's also probably pretty tough to get on those flights. You're quite well traveled. So I want to ask you about 
the most memorable or one of the most memorable uh, and transformative travel experiences you've ever had? A place called the Comoro Islands. Um, this is also an archipelago, but this time off of the um, east coast of African continent. There was just something about being there felt like being so far, so far from everything I knew in my daily life that that was quite transformative for me. And it doesn't hurt that the beaches are gorgeous, but it's, it's hot as hell. So I went from very, very hot places to now exploring the Arctic. For more information on Svalbard and Atusa Abrahamian, visit thenation.com. We also have links to her story on our show page at worldfootprints.com. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world one story at a time. We invite you to travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com, and make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift. If someone dared you to turn off your phone for 16 days whilst on holiday, would you do it? Well, that's exactly what Johnny Welsh and his girlfriend did. As a bartender, Johnny's observations about the proliferation of smartphones in our lives led him to take on this dare and disconnect from technology in order to reconnect with people. In his book, Paper Maps, No Apps, Johnny rediscovers the power of personal interaction that travel brings when we just let go of our technology. Johnny, tell us about the genesis of your unplugged adventure. Well, it started off as a dare between my girlfriend and I to see if we could actually unplug for the full 16 days of a road trip. And then it kind of turned into a bet. And then it, from there, it went to like a social experiment where we actually were telling people what we were doing throughout the road trip. So this was 16 days long. And where did you guys go? Well, we left Colorado. We're in Frisco near the Vail and Breckenridge area. We drove through Utah, Arizona, Nevada, California, into Mexico, and then back all the way around to Frisco again. So how did you select where to travel? And Well, we had uh, seven days in the middle of that trip was to be in near San Diego. We were camping out. We were meeting some friends there for a surf trip. So we decided to actually just drive, you know, a lower route below and visit some places. We settled up beforehand, you know, on the laptop. We had a couple of destinations in mind, and we left the rest of it up to the, the whims of the road and the paper maps. Now, how did it feel to be unplugged for so long? Like a ton of bricks off my shoulder. I mean, we're, we're about average users of our smartphones, but even I think as an average user, uh, you might, I, mean, I might miss some serendipities along the way, which I really crave that when I travel. You traveled primarily in the Western United States and, and Mexico. Was there a particular reason for that area or is that uh, just just one of those things that came up just one of those things we found a, a nice uh, loop you know through uh, highway systems and booked some uh, hotels along the way and then the rest of the way we camped out and found hotels you know just by roadsides <laughs> how did you two get along that entire time we got along just fine actually it's funny you should say that our communication level was so enhanced that during the trip, we were a girlfriend and boyfriend, and now we are engaged, and we're getting married September 3rd, 2020. Oh, I'm 
I'm so happy for you guys. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, I can't say that it's because of this trip, but hey, you know what? It did not hurt to unplug and pay attention. Wow. And, and now you have, you know, a paper um, memory of your trip. You, you wrote a book and uh, it's almost a part travel log and part uh, travel book. What inspired you to write Paper Maps, No Apps? Well, that, I'm a bartender in the resort community, so I'm, I'm very fortunate to always be around travel, whether I'm traveling or the travelers come to me. And I love to see when travelers come into the restaurant and they engage with each other. To me, that's part of the magic of travel is to meet the people on the road to meet the locals to find out what's cool to do, what's cool to see, what shouldn't I miss. And I remember one night in the restaurant, a family of four came in and I sat there watching them the whole entire dinner. You know, I, I'm not going to preach to anybody as a bartender. I don't want to be a soapbox bartender, but it just makes me sad that there's not as much interaction in today's world due to the you know, addictive nature of smartphone screens. So that's where the dare and the bet came up. Now, what inspired me to turn this into a book was about midway through the trip. We were having a little lunch at a restaurant in Las Vegas, and we're telling the bartenders and the servers what we're doing. And next thing you know, the other servers are gathering around. And before we know it, there's other guests. They're standing behind us. Hey, wait a minute, what are you guys doing? I think, well, we're traveling around for 16 days through five states, and we, we took our, turned our phones off. And they were confused, like, well, how are you guys getting around? And we laughed. We're like, well, we have paper maps. And they're like, no. And then the girl was like, wait, wait a minute. She's like, well, well, what do you guys do in the morning? I'm like, well, we, we talk to each other. And she was like, <laughs> no. I mean, I'm embellishing her reaction, but she did have a reaction. And then when she left her shift at 4 o'clock, we watched her walk out the door of the restaurant. She turned around. She came back in. Her name was Laura. And she goes, you know what? Put her hands on our shoulders. She says, I got to just tell you guys, you changed my perspective today. And I wanted to thank you. And I wow. got the goosebumps when she said, I get the chills. And I'm like, you know what? We need to really document this trip. You know, take some, uh, some cool photos, make a photo journal, and share this trip. Because maybe we can change some perspectives. You never know what, what can happen out there. So we had a travel journal, a photo journal. We, our goal was to be 95% unplugged. Because we mm -hmm. have to text mom every few days. You can't need mom out of the equation. She'll send a search party looking for us. <laughs> <laughs> she will. So, and we also had a couple of uh, clips where we filmed a little, a little bit of video throughout the trip to actually document that along the way to have a little video footage. Hmm. So, I mean, you, you obviously you gained a lot of insights um, that you uncovered during this this period from the conversations you had at restaurants with other people, etc. What do you think is the most um, impactful insight that you gained uh, about the, just the nature of this type of travel? Well, for me, there was uh, three things that I really noticed that were impactful. We, we actually, we met more people because our chins were up. We're looking around, we are alert. And people kept gravitating towards us. They asked, what are you guys up to? You guys are, you guys are looking around <laughs> like it's strange. Because it's, it's, you know, it's only been 10 years since the smartphone craze has, you know, really uh, invaded us, I should say. And it, I guess it seems different now to have people that are just standing alert and looking around. So we met more people because of that. We noticed more art. Now, mm. we noticed that we, in restaurants, instead of looking down 
at, at a phone or a device, we're looking up and around. Oh, I could see in the far corner, somebody hung up a little, a little piece of art and they thought to put it way up there. And that's pretty weird that it's up there, but it's so cool that I can see it and I'm, I'm aware. So we, we met more people, we noticed more art. And like I said, we communicated more. We were both present. Johnny, you mentioned that as a bartender, you would listen to people come in and talk to them, but not, not be preachy. And your book reflects that, as uh, you mentioned. It's mostly about your travels through the Western United States, but it is bookended with some practical advice about dealing with this digital age and detoxifying from, from these devices. So with respect to the insights that you gained about the smartphone and our lives around it, share some of those things that uh, you think might be helpful to people as they perhaps put their phones aside to try to uh, be more mindful of the world around them and what's going on with themselves beyond a phone. Yeah, like I said, I mean, uh, just to be engaged and be present, to me, that's the magic of travel and the mystique of the journey. And by putting that down, we, we just, we really, we, like I said, we communicated better, we communicated more. And the, like the art I was mentioning in the restaurants, we also saw the art on the side of the road. I call it roadside art. And that's what people put in their yards, like funny little statues or sculptures or signs. And if you're driving in a car and, and you, no one's paying attention, looking out the window, you may miss those attractions. And the, the serendipity of that all was that we started as a game. So I recommend if they want to unplug, get, get with a partner, a friend, a loved one, a family member, and make a game out of it if you have to. Make a bet where someone has to do all the shopping for the next two weeks at the house or whatever. Something fun. Keep it fun. Keep it interesting. Keep it lively. And, you know, not, not too much pressure or stress on that actual bet. But it's fun to make a game out of it so you can actually unplug. And what I've been doing in my life personally as of late is I schedule time off where I'll just I'll turn it off and I've been picking up a book and reading. I'm back into reading again. <laughs> I joke around at the bar and I say, yeah, I'm reading an old fashioned book with paper pages in it. And everyone seems to laugh at that because it just seems, seems funny now. <laughs> <laughs> so along your journey, is there one of the one place that you visited that really just touched you that you really connected with? Yes, that was, uh, we had set up uh, ahead of time, a little bungalow on the beach in Mexico. Now, when we showed up there, it was in a torrential downpour, it was raining. And we're sitting in the house and it's a little chilly because we're on the beach and we made a fire in the fireplace. So we're in a, a beach bungalow on the beach in Mexico in a rainstorm and we don't have our phones on. So we had to put the little clock radio on. We allowed ourselves to have a little radio and we had the, the local music playing, you know, it was fun. <laughs> and then, so I, I asked my girlfriend, Christy, I said, hey, how about if I grab that book we bought a few days ago by David Sedaris and I read to you from the book. And she was already sitting down Indian style in front of the, in the fire, eager to hear the story. So I started reading to my girlfriend from a book in front of the fire in a bungalow on the beach in Mexico during a rainstorm. That was one of the most touching and special moments that I never, never would have thought had we were just sitting there, you know, scrolling, swiping, texting, tagging, updating, shopping, you name it. To follow Johnny's adventures and for more of his writings, visit johnnywelch.com and look for links on our show page at worldfootprints.com.
Well, today's show, Dear, dealt with not only open borders when the discussion of borders is front and center, particularly in this country, and also the almost addiction to technology. I'd never heard of Svalbard until today. This territory that's controlled by Norway is really front and center to a lot of the discussions we're having about the environment and open borders. So it'll be interesting to see how these things continue to play out there and elsewhere around the world. Indeed. With Johnny's non-digital adventure, I found that very funny and very fun, really. And I remember the time when we sailed through Glacier Bay in Alaska, and I was actually forced to put my phones in a locker or in our safe, um, one, because we did not have internet connection at, you know, during a certain part, uh, area of the the bay that we were sailing through, but uh, two, because you're a little bit irritated with me that uh, I was working whilst we were on holiday. Yeah, and you had two phones at the time, which is uh, (laughs) really kind of crazy if you think about it. So as a final thought, we want to share the words of the English writer and philosopher Aldous Huxley, who once said, to travel is to discover that everyone is wrong about other countries. Thank you for traveling with us today. We ask you to invite your friends and family to join us on these journeys. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to connecting you to the world one story at a time on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints, LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.